Hi, it's Brian. Today's episode features industry veteran Jerry Silverheart. Jerry is a talent manager with a track record of nurturing promising actors into stardom. His career journey is marked by noteworthy collaborations with many, including Tom Cruise, whom he helped discover out of high school. Jerry's relentless dedication and optimism has transformed unpolished diamonds into shining stars. This episode is filled with Jerry's colorful stories, along with his sage advice for all aspiring actors. Before you listen, you've got to grab our backstage pass. It's packed with Jerry's top tips, insider advice, and additional resources that will give you a competitive edge. You can grab the backstage pass by going to podcastbackstagepass.com. We go way back. And I would say to you, Jerry, well, this is how far back. In our lifetimes, I would say there are some... Large, well, first of all, which, which drawn me, and I know with you to this business, is the larger-than-life aspect. Okay, so for instance, I was thinking of larger-than-life people, Michael Jackson, Elvis, Tom Brady, who's a, an athlete. But, you know, up there, not, not, not maybe quite, but pretty up there, is Tom Cruise. So I would love to hear, we never got a chance to talk about this, your story about Tom Cruise and... Could you tell back then? I mean, this man has become a giant. So, so let's hear. How did, how did you even find how did you charisma? It was just Where did you see him? I saw him in a production at high school. High school? Where was he going to high school? He was in New Jersey, Glen Ridge. Glen, and how far away from the city was, is Glen? 40 minutes. Do you just happen to say, let me go? No, because a friend of mine's cousin was the choreographer. I wanted to see what is your opinion of her work. And I'm like, I don't go to high school shows. Unless it's my nieces or nephews, look, I, I can't do it. And he kept cajoling me. Because, and I go, no, especially not going to New Jersey. I'm not taking a subway. I'm not taking a bus. I'm not doing it. And finally, he got me and said, I'll take you for a fabulous meal. And I said, well, as long as it's not Arby's. And how long have you been managing since then? I mean, I mean. Oh, mean, I was way into the business. Okay. Oh, okay. So he, he convinces you to come out there. And this kid had one of the lead roles. He wanted you to see the kid. No, no. It just so happened that I've seen the choreographer's work. Oh, my gosh. He was like, let me show you my work. Okay. And then, he, and then I saw this kid. He couldn't act, sing, or dance. Could not. No. What was the production? Guys and Dolls. And I, whenever I talk about it, I say to the actors, then why would I be interested? He had such charisma. Even though he couldn't sing, act, or dance. He lit up the entire joint. I mean, you heard women. You heard guys. I mean, it it was the magnetism in him. Okay, so it was, when you said he couldn't sing, sing, act, or dance, was it just the looks, or what do you mean by magnetism? Well, he was a very cute kid, but I mean, he lit, it's just, he smiled and it was all over. And he's short, too. And he is short. But, he, but remember, that was high school, so too. You wouldn't notice it. Yeah. But his, it, it was such charisma. So whenever I sit in the room, and you've heard me, Brian, when they say, what are you looking for? And I go, yeah, we all say the same thing. You have to have the talent. But my thing is, I want to see charisma. If you just sit there, you can be talented. But if you don't have anything to connect to me, then, you know, and I've, I've, I've found a lot of people. Remember Richard Grieco, Dylan McDermott at the Neighborhood Playhouse? I was at a scene night. His aunt kept going to me, come and see him, come and see him. I'm like, you know, the aunt. I'm like, oh, God, it's the aunt. How did you know the aunt? How did you know his aunt? She worked for a friend of mine in advertising. And I saw him at the Neighborhood Playhouse. And I'm like, okay. 
He had the chops. He had everything. And I take him on as a client. Nobody, not one agency in New York would sign him. Because I didn't see what I see. I want to go back to Tom Cruise. And one small company took him online. He'd get out a little bit. It was me doing all the work. And then I put him in a... I I didn't do it, but I got him an audition. It was for the first replacement cast of Biloxi Blues. You're talking about Richard Greco? No, Dylan McDermott. Oh, Dylan McDermott. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Mark McDermott. Okay. They offered him a role in one of the replacements. The only one staying in the show is still Matthew Broderick. And that's a major win for an actor who hasn't done anything. And you're going on Broadway and you're going to work with Gene Sachs, who's a, who was an amazing you know, theater director. And you're doing Neil Simon and you're working opposite Matthew Broderick. It's like a win, win, win. And then we had to change his name because someone else in the union was Mark McDermott. So you were part of the changing of his mm-hmm. name to Dylan. Mm-hmm. Oh, Jerry, I want to put Wait, right. He's in the show for a year. I bring people to see him, and still no one wants to sign On Broadway. Yep. Then, he, then when, the sh- when his time was running down, there was a movie being cast called Biloxi. See, a lot of people don't know this. There was a movie being cast called um, Hamburger Hill. One of my favorite casting directors in New York who since passed quite a while ago, Mary Calhoun, Irish, brilliant, brilliant, brilliant woman. Got him in on that. He got his first movie. And it was directed by John Irwin, who later directed um, the movie with Meryl Streep and Jack Nicholson. And Marsha Ambassador, who was the first female president of a studio. And they shot him in the Philippines. And, the interesting, and it was an army movie. And the interesting thing about that movie was, listen to this, first time actors that came out of this movie. You ready? Billy mm-hmm. McDermott, Don Cheadle, Courtney Vance, Steven Weber. Where have you gone to a movie with four not one, not two, but four actors pop out of that movie, and they start working. So, Jerry, I want to put a pin on that for a second. I want to go back to Tom Cruise. You see him in this, in this high school show. So you go up to him afterwards, and you go like, Tom, my name is Jerry. What do you do? I tell you what I'm going to show this. Yeah. You said it's that? Horrible you, you came out, though. Please elaborate. He had no interest. Listen, you went up to him afterwards and you said that? I'm in the industry. I'd like to meet with you. He had no interest. He was the captain of his wrestling team. <laughs> captain of his wrestling So then what happened? That was it. Until months later, he had an injury. He had an injury in wrestling. Oh, and was he a junior? Was he a senior? senior. He was a senior. So, he did, so who contacted who? He called me. He called you. He said, hey, remember me? And he had the Southern accent. You know, he had a little accent. He was really polite. Listen, he's, he's originally born in Kentucky. Huh. If I'm not mistaken. Okay. That was like a long time. And it was a split up, I think, is right? Or, okay. So he, he's in New Jersey, calls you. Does he come into the office in Manhattan? Okay. What, and then I started working with him. And it was just that. And I got What's him, the first thing you did with him? I got him into a class with Phil Gushy from the neighborhood podcast. Oh, yes. And then he started going in auditions. Wow. And was the, what was the first thing he booked with you, would you say? you remember? Taps. Oh, he booked taps with you. Okay, Jerry. What but that was not the role he booked. Okay. He booked a small role. And then? Well, then I got a call from the producer, Stanley Jaffe, and they told me they wanted to talk to me about Tom, and I'm on the phone going, well, he's brand new, and I don't know what show. You, you start thinking, what happened? And they said, no, 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 it's nothing like that. One of the other boys who had the role of David, that Tom subsequently got, he wasn't working. It wasn't working. And they needed to replace him. But they saw it in Tom and wanted to reverse the role. And in the beginning, Tom did not want to do that because he didn't want to hurt his friend. Tom, what a guy. So the producer said, here's the deal. If he does it, if he takes the role, his friend 
will get Tom's role and still be on the film for 15 weeks. I think it was a 15-week shoot. So he's still going to get the same amount of money. They all got run of the show movies, Schedule F. And finally, I convinced him, and that was that. You know, it was not easy. I mean, you know, every movie is a different story. You know, he did a movie with Shelley Long and Jackie Hurley that sort of maybe the light of day, some comedy movie called Losing It. But he was an interesting kid because when he got his meeting on The Outsiders. And you were with him then? Oh, yeah. And he had, it was a very small agency in New York called DMI. He went in. He didn't bathe for two days. I mean, he knew that instinctively because wow. he was one of the hitters, you know, one of the bad boys. And then they got that movie. But it was still not one, two, three. Nothing to me that I don't believe is one, two, three. Well, maybe now it's. When he started to book, did you kind of get a glimpse that, oh, he's going he's gonna to really be huge or no? It was just risky business. Wait, you were with him then? Get the, wait, you were with Tom Cruise for risky business. Okay, because to me, that is when his career just... Boom. And Marcy Weirof was the casting director. Marcy well, who's friends with Jeffrey? Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, then unfortunately what happened for me was I was going through a bad time in my life, we knew it was time for him to move to LA. I even came out with him and got him to meet a few people. CIA then took him on. Hold on, stop right there. So you're with him. When you say CIA took him on, does he still stay with you as a manager? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, but I, I couldn't move here. And that was what was the thing. He didn't fire me. Our contract was, was up. I just was going into what I was going into. Okay, can I ask you then, if you didn't move here looking back, because one of the questions I was going to ask you today is if you look back on, can you, can you, can you just mention some wins and some regrets you might have had in your life? Do you regret that you ha- did? I can't, I don't do that. Okay, good. I like I'm that. a person that I don't believe in going should or would have. Love it. I can't do that. You know, I won't, I won't do that. And I tell my clients, I try to put that in, like, I try to instill that with my clients. You know, look, you know, instead of thinking about this and let it, you know, take you, take over you and swallow you up. Move on. I, I love and it. And I also say when they do an audition, you send in this update, we hope for the best. Keep working. Keep moving on. Wow. Jerry, unbelievable. So you don't move out here, and obviously that's when he... He didn't go to another manager. He did not. He's that kind of guy. So Jerry, he when you, when you gave the example of a friend of his that he, he didn't want to take his role, same kind of guy. He stayed with you. Okay, so he stayed with you till when? What happened? Well, that's just it. After the risky business, quite a while after that, I just was going through a really tough, tough time on my, in my personal life. So as a, as a, as a person, it sounds like he was a real gentleman. Mm-hmm. Wow, Jim. That is really nice to hear. Yeah. But I've always had that eye. You know, Richard Cricker was the same way. I told a friend of mine, which was doing a photo session, you got to come and see this guy. Your eyeballs are going to fly out of your head. Because he was gorgeous. He was doing, I think he was doing something for a campaign. I don't, I don't even remember, but I went and I was like, oh, are you kidding me? Started talking to him. A friend of mine was his commercial agent, William Morris. She put in a few words for me. We met again and I took him on. And we were together for quite a while. So I got to produce for him also. I was an active producer is what I'm saying. I, I was involved in creative. I got to read, you know, sit in the writing notes. And, you know, when he did a pilot, Warner Brothers, we laid, the CBS gave him a deal, we brought it into Warner Brothers, we were on the lot, and I was involved in everything. I got to sit in on the casting sessions, I got to sit in the network session, I got to sit in the writer's room, I got very close with the creator, who was an amazing guy, who wound up being the showrunner a little into when the show started. He took over Supernatural, this guy, Bobby Singer, Robert Singer, and I learned from that. 
So then when there was another project that we would try to negotiate me and to be a producer, somebody would say, wow, no, Jerry will be involved. How did you see Gabrielle on, on war? Did you? She was filming Looks Can Kill in Canada, and I got to see some of the dailies. Okay. He was from England. Did she have a manager? That, no. Okay, so you saw some of the dailies. And I said, oh, she's got it. So did you reach out to her? Mm -hmm. Got a meeting with her, and I took her on as a client. Put her with Innovative. Okay. It was Howard Goldberg and Scott Harris, who were the owners. It used to be called Harris Goldberg at that point. They were amazing with her. And I had her. She did a bunch of movies with, through me. She did. Um, and I don't remember what order they were in, but she did um, Wild Hearts Can't Be Broken. It's a true story about a young blind girl, I think in the Midwest, during around the time of the um, Depression. And she had a thing to ride horses, and she would dive them on a diving board. Like Atlantic City. And that's, what she, that's how she made a living. And isn't it ironic then she got sent of a woman who's about a blind man. Now, was she with you then? Oh, and wow. she did a movie with Michael J. Fox called For the Love of Money. And then she did a remake of the one with the pods. You know, the pod movie, Body Snatchers. They did a remake and there was her, Forrest Whitaker, and I don't remember who else. Hey, it's Brian. I'm dropping in on an important announcement. What you need to know is you have more control over your career than you think. The thing standing between you and the career you want is your connections. And that's where one-on-one -on -one Next Level comes in. If you are not a member yet, you can apply to join at oneononenextlevel.com. Press pause and do that now. If you are already a member and you are ready to get back on track, we want to invite you to book a strategy session with us led by myself personally. We will help you prioritize which classes make the most sense given your career goals. You can find these under the resource hub in your account portal. We can't wait to hear your success story. So Jerry, one of the most inspirational things you've said today is, so when you saw Tom Cruise and he didn't act, you know, Sanger, what, what is it, you know, all actors always come to Brian and I and always, they're, they're always trying to find that secret ingredient. And, you know, it, it isn't, it's about themselves, right? And, you know, even today, listening to a, another podcast, the guy was like, look, just the special magic in anything is being yourself. Do you find that in most cases, people just, they can't do it? Mm -hmm. What gets in the way? What do, you, what do you think gets in the way? They're being arrogant. They think they know it all, some of them. They might be afraid to find the inner them. I always say you got to be the best version of you. The other thing I always say what is, that I, mean? you've heard, what about, I think, Brian, you've heard me say this, where, where I always say to everybody, you should, you know, it's like an affirmation. Get up in the morning, look in the mirror, and see who you are. Who what is you that? really are. What, what does that actually see to me? Someone sort of said to me, Mark, see who you are. I want to know what That's that like means. That's what you want to say, like, I'm the old you. <laughs> <laughs> if someone looks in the mirror, who is a nerd? Not that there's anything wrong with it, but accept it, embrace it, yes. own it. Yes. Okay. Own that. Yeah. And then before you go to bed, you got to do the same thing. Yeah. You have to have some form of affirmation. Gotcha. You know, because if you don't understand who you are, that's a stumbling block. I had a client a long time ago in New York, a wonderful actor, since he passed away, and he was like 19. And she was incredible. And he, he was Jewish, but he played Hispanic, he played Middle Eastern, because he had that look. He worked, right? And I remember he, did a, he had a great gig. 
He had uh, maybe three episodes, two or three episodes on Miami Vice. He played the grandson of he was Edward, Edward James Olmos, son, I don't remember. And, you know, but he had a great year. He did two after-school specials. They don't do those anymore. They're like one little one-hour mini-movies with a story, with a lesson. And he comes back to New York, and he calls me up. I'm back. I said, great. Yada, yada. Do this. That's great. And he said, oh, can we get together? I said, sure. So we get together for lunch. You know, how to go. I love this. I love that. He says, and I said, good. You should be happy. Well, I'm like, oh, here it comes. And he said, well... I'm not really happy. What are you talking about? You just worked with this, 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 this. You did an off-Broadway play, this, this, this. He said, well, I think I should be going after the same role as Timothy Hutton. I'm like, but that's not who you are. You're not, you're not the all-American next door boy. This is who you are. And it's a great place to be. But he was adamant about it. So I called his agent and we all got together and he said what he wanted to say, and we said, let us think about it. And then I got on the phone with the agent. I said, you know what? He's a good kid. He's young. Let's at least see if we can make this happen for him. And we had to beg, borrow, and steal to get him in the door for a different kind of role because all the cast directors knew them. And if they didn't know him, they'd see the picture and go, well, that's, that's not who he is. So he had very few auditions. You know, he couldn't accept that, and he just said, I, I should have. I said, but... You're going against something that's never going to, it's not going to open for you in that respect. And then what happened was the agent said, bye, you know, and I stayed a couple of months more. And it was just so tough. And he didn't want to hear what I had to say. And I'm not, I'm not going to say I'm always right, but I was right. And I said, you know what? I think it's time for, I, I think the world of you, you're incredibly talented, but I think that's the time that we go our different ways. And I only wish you the best. And that's what we did. And then like, um, I kind of watched from afar what, if anything was happening, and there wasn't. And then, like, anyways, two years later, we run into each other somewhere, and I said, how are you doing? He says, well, to be honest with you, he says, I've been really been working. And then he realized, and he owned up to it. And Jerry, how many times have you heard the story? I mean, how, have you experienced this story as a manager many times? Yeah, not many. Well, but it seems like that you, I've heard. A lot of times they don't want to realize. They don't want to hear about it. And they don't want to admit it. He admitted it. He knew it. It was a couple, it was more than two, it was a couple years later. But I, I don't go back to the well. No, but this is good for our studio audience. Like, can you tell them from the story? It, was, it sounds so like. So what he did was when he finally, I was only representing when he finally embraced himself, he was working and working and working and working. And I felt good. So he came back. No, no, no. I don't go back to the well. No, no, but he he came back to you. No, okay. Wanted to, but I just couldn't do it. But the point is, I was happy for him. I was truly happy for him. And then I went to see him in a play at the Vivian Beaumont Theater at Lincoln Center, and I congratulated him. I said, "Hey, look what you." He says, "Because I finally, you know, clicked." The kind of person you are, I would find it very hard to believe that Tom Cruise wouldn't reach out just to say, hey, Jerry, how are you? Has he done that? No. All right. I'm just curious. Yeah, that's fine. But, you know, that was 100 years ago. No, it's, it's still. Still, I'm, speaking of 100 years, so you've been in the business for a long time. Yes, I was there with Gloria Swanson. He knows I always, you know, I always say I'm here more than Methuselah. They're like, who's Methuselah? Oh, Lord, you don't read. That's his intro. He always introduces himself as, you know. Dinosaur, <laughs> but you've been in the business for a while, and but you were actually you've been a manager kind of before ever before like the trend of all these agents becoming managers, and before it became cool. Like I mean, you know what a lot of people don't know about me is I've been in the 
realm of the entertainment industry in different ways. I mean, I started out in the classical world. When I was a baby, I worked for Sachiak, who was the world's biggest impresario. And he had everybody's clients from all the big, you know, from Yitzchak Perlman to Pincus Zuckerman to, you know, Leon Chin Price to Grace Bunbury to Nuriab to Dick Margot Fontaine and all of these wonderful people. So I got that side of me, which was amazing. And I was able to, to understand it because my mom was an opera singer before my brothers and I were. So mom introduced us to opera, but I was the only one that really fell in love with it. But that was a great stepping ground for me because I was working in the place. If he would promote something, like he'd bring in, the, he was the first Amer he was the first American to bring the Bolshoi to to in New York. He brought in Sadler Wells from London. He brought in Rona Petit's ballet company. Um, what I don't remember with his wife Gigi Jamer, and I was exposed to all this. So that gave me a great foundation just in the arts. Just to understand there's different pieces and different aspects and different ways. Then from there, I got a job at Bantam Books as an agent. No publisher ever did that. They had in-house agents to book their authors at colleges and talk shows around the country and, and appearances and universities and rotary clubs and things like that. And we had people like Lenin Uris who wrote Exodus. And for me at that time, I was 24, I think, and he was my hero. You know, a Jewish kid from the suburbs, and you get to meet Leon Uris, it doesn't get better than that. We had Rod Serling, and we had Dr. Lawrence and the Peter Principal, and we had all these brilliant writers, and you get to, you get, you're exposed to these people. And the funny thing is, I never wanted to read after college. The last thing I wanted to do is, you know, because you know college, you got to read this, you got to read that. And then, so when you're at Phantom Books, every month, the mailroom would come and they'd bring you a stack, and you'd get the brand new books for the month. And I always put them onto my desk. And one day, the head of the department, she kind of doesn't know, but she sees I'm not under the, you know, I'm not like this. I'm like, yeah. I sit at my desk. She says, why do you sit so far away? <laughs> or it's comfortable. How is it comfortable? All of a sudden, she's like, I don't even know. And she gets down and she says, what is this? But she opened up my eyes again. You, Rod Serling, when he was... Uh, when he was with Twilight Zone, when he was writing, I mean, she was humongous, unbelievable. Wow. So when you entered like talent management, though, I'm so curious because from what I remember, there was a period where big managers were it wasn't taboo, but so many agents were like, you don't need a manager unless you're yeah. a star or mm -hmm. something. Did you have to encounter a lot of like skepticism or a lot of not as much? Uh -huh. Because when I gave them my little background, they liked it. Uh -huh. But in those days, there was no such thing as breakdowns. Because there were no emails. <laughs> so when in those days, you called casting people. I remember the first time I came to LA, I came and I had like a portfolio of my clients, like I was a model. And this is Brian Shin. And this is Mark Isaacman. And this is Sadie Rabinowitz. And this is how it did it. And you'd walk out with scripts. And then when the breakdowns first came out, they were delivered. And it was goldenrod paper because I didn't want anyone to mass produce it and give it to somebody that wasn't paying. But that's how it was done. And you drop off your pictures and you did messengers. And, hey. and there were, as many as casting directors there were, there was not like today. And would you say this is true or not true? This is probably going to get edited out. But um, in New York, from, I don't know why, it seems like there's an adversarial uh, thing about managers and agents, uh, at least at least from some of my experiences uh, 
agents would would say what Brian's saying, you don't need a manager and managers. Yeah, anyways, it, it, they, they weren't fans of each other. Like in, in LA, from my running the LA uh, Super Showcase, the, the, the managers and the agents embrace each other here much more, in my opinion, than in New York. Why do you think that is? Control? Can you elaborate a little bit? That's all I can say. I mean, why here is it so nice? Because here, everybody knows they need help. Oh, because in New York, I don't experience that as well. Remember, New York is a different animal. When I was a manager there, they did something called freelancing. Yes. Right. You know, I, you know what I mean? I do that, and I think they still do that? Yeah, they do it. You know what I, 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 I tell people? Because a lot of doctors will say, like, with pride, I'm freelancing with someone. I said, you know what that means? And they say, what? I said, he or she is just not that into you to marry. So they're going to say, I'm freelancing. And they're so proud. I'm like, don't go exactly advertising that because that means well, when we go. Sometimes, but sometimes that's how I found right. who I'd want to put a client with. Right. You know, it was supposed to be a little confusing because I'd have that book out there. Who called first? Who called second? Who called third? You know, the first person that calls to submit you, they say, I want to clear Mark for the role of Joey Hoey in Paradise Lost. And I write that down. And then I would monitor it, right? And then if someone called after that, I'd say, I'm sorry, he's already taken by another agency. As crazy it was, there were some good points to it. Then I come out here and that did not exist whatsoever. Except the term, like you said, Brian, hip hop, right? Yeah, does that, does I don't know anyone that does that anymore. And I would not work with that. I mean, I've heard it years, a couple of years ago, but I would never, ever, ever do that. At least people have told us, right? It, it, sometimes when they're, when they're kind of interested in the beginning, they want to get a feel. They'll say, I'm going to hip pocket you for like a couple months and then, and then they'll yeah, sign them. They might sign you, but my only fear is sometimes no one agent represents all the projects. Because everything is in territory. Everyone is, you cover these care centers. So if, if you're not covering this project that I think my client is right for, why do, you know, managers, you know, agents are great. And I have some very good agents I work with, and I'm very close to a lot of them. But the only difference is, you know, the managers involved from A to Z. Pictures, photographers, who, these are the five photographers I love. When is it time to get a publicist? When is it time that you need to keep staying in class? Who are the certain workshops you need to go to? Who are the ones you don't want to go to? This is what you need. This is what you don't need. We encompass that. The agents don't. Now, but to be fair to some agents that I love in the smaller office, one agent that I adore, Nick, you know, he's very involved in helping pick a client's photos. He's very involved in having photographers. These are good photographers. And so it's a great... When you can find this relationship hand in hand, then you're in a good place. And when the actors do ask us, and you know, when we're doing the panels here and they say, this agent doesn't think I need a manager. And I'm like, you know, each to his own. But we as managers are saying, this is why it would behoove you to also have a manager. And at the end of the day, when you have a manager and an agent, then you have two voices speaking for you. There are times when a client of mine, if an agent's having a hard time, They'll call me or email me and say, do you know so-and-so? Maybe you can give a push. And that we do, and vice versa. Or I go to the agent, look, I sent a follow-up an email. Do you know Susie Q? And that will make a push. And Jerry, what I love about what you say to people, which doesn't go over so well with some people because it's a wake-up call, is an actor, if they choose this business to pursue, 
they have to have money. And if they don't have money, they have to get the money. And if they, if they can't get the money, they have to figure out a way. Because a lot of actors are sitting at home waiting for something to happen. They don't want to take class because it costs money. They don't want to take uh, do this. Or, and I would say, and I agree with you on this, if you don't have the money, then figure out a way to get the money because it takes money to you're make the money. You're investing yourself. You know, I, and I've said this when I was, I did, I think, two work, two play. I came to your place twice in New York City, right? One by myself and one with, I think it was in two Another other managers. managers. And I say it all the time. You want to come to LA? You need to know you have money to cover your rent for at least a year. You have to transportation or understand how to get around LA, right? And you need to have this and you need to have that because it's a different beast here. What, what would you say? Is, can you be a little more specific? What is the different beast? Well, the beast is in New York, you just hop on the subway. Right. So right away, you cut out having to buy or rent a car right. or lease a car. That's the big thing. But you can't come out and go, okay, I moved in LA. Ah, no. You know, I say that to my clients. You all have to be in a class. Unless you're on a set, you're in a class. And a lot of actors, they don't hear that. Mm-hmm. Actors that don't do it. They don't think they... And like I said, one client, for example, you've been with me now two years. You've never gotten to any of these classes. You'll do one or two workshops, but you need to be constantly working your craft. You got to constantly oil yourself. You got to, you know, you got to be a well-oiled machine because the competition. And I say this also, I say to them, when, you, when they used to walk into a casting office, when you, when you walk in, when you lift your foot up, there's 10 guys right under that foot. It's true. And, and just like an athlete, you've got to go to the gym. And if an actor's not going to go to the class, which is the gym, then how are they going to stay in shape? And that's why I say, you make sure you have a job. And I call it, of course, a survival job. It's like that metaphor will say, you know, being an actor is like running your own small business. And the number, number one reason why a lot of small businesses go out is they don't have money to, you know, inject. And, I, and that's when a lot of us managers, and I've heard other friends among us say, saying, you have to be the CEO of your business. Right. You're the conductor, or maybe we're the conductor in your first chair, and you're, or I'm first chair and you're the conductor. But it's, it's got to be an effort. You know, if I say to somebody, this is just a suggestion, but if you're finding me on it, then maybe we're not right for each other. I don't mind if we don't always meet like this, but if it's constantly happening, then there's something happening. If someone says it means that I haven't had an audition in three months, this is the business. Nobody does special programs like one-on-one next level. It's where we really help actors shine. I'm Emilio. I signed with my Southeast agent right after the Atlanta trip. And now I'm auditioning several times every month. And you know, I almost didn't do the Atlanta trip because I thought it was just another cash grab. I can tell you from experience that it's not. That's not how one-on-one next level rolls. And here we are six months later, and I already booked my first job with my Atlanta agent. I'm Rebecca, and the Bridge program demystified the industry for me. It gave me the platform to get off book in under 10 minutes. I met 60 new artists that are now all a part of my community, and I even signed with a manager. I have never walked away from a program so confident in my abilities. I'm so grateful for one-on-one next level. My name is Capenna, and I can finally call myself a working actor after participating in the LA Super Showcase. I had just moved to LA and I felt stuck. I came across the LA Super Showcase and let me tell you, it was a life-changing experience. I signed with an agent and since then, I've been auditioning for series regulars and booked my first TV job. I finally feel like I made it to the next level, thanks to one-on-one next level. 
In the next 12 months, One-on-One -on -one Next Level will host 27 special programs bringing you unmatched, exclusive access to industry connections. Special programs aren't just a one-and-done class. Instead, they're designed to accomplish in a weekend what it takes most actors months, even years to do. So whether you want to get repped in a smaller market like Atlanta, bypass casting directors and connect directly with TV showrunners and decision makers, or spend a weekend meeting a bunch of musical theater industry professionals in New York City, you have to become a member to be eligible to sign up for our special programs. To apply, go to www.1on1nextlevel.com. We can't wait to hear your success story. You know, Jerry, there was a director that taught at One on One Next Level. He's no longer with us. But he used to always tell the actor, now he was a film director, and he always said, he said, you know, the, the, the issue that actors may not know when it comes to me, meaning he was a film director, he goes, we, I went to film school. He went to the big film school out here, um, AFI. AFI. And uh, his name was Gary Winnick. I'll give you his name. And he said, um, you know, an actor's always looking to me for the answer. And he said, and I was educated with a lot of technology. He said, so someone auditions for me and they've made it to the callback. He said, and they're, and they're looking to me or they're even, even at the rehearsal, he said, I actually have always been the one who's chosen the actor and who wants to work with the actor that shows me how the role, I had a picture of the role and they're showing me what the role is really meant to be. He said, so many actors are looking to me to give them the answer. I'm looking to the actor to give me the answer. Can you elaborate? Do you no, that's looking for another way to present the role. What are your thoughts on it when you can be in that position? But I'll tell you something else that I learned from Stephen J. Cannell, who was an amazing you know, creator of shows, The A-Team, Hardcastle McCormick, Wise Guy, Jump Street, all of these were his, right? And he was the man. And I remember when we were camp, Greco was doing a pilot for him for UPN Network that was out for like five seconds. I remember it. Star Trek was on it. Right. Oh, and, we were in, and we were in a producer session. There was Steven, uh, the writer-producers, the casting director. And we're in the room. You know, it's a, I think the role was a girl, the lead guest role, and she had to be a volleyball champion or whatever. And one girl comes in, and she was a little nervous. But you can see something was going on, kind of. And when she was done... Uh, the cast director was so quick to flip her off and go, okay, bye. And Mr. Cattle said, you know, do me a favor. Keep the sides, go out into the waiting room. I want you to read it again and look at it, and I'm going to bring you back in. She goes out, the door closes, and the cast director said, what happened? Why did you do this? Just because I knew she had something going on, meaning she brought in luggage. And the casting director was questioning Stephen Cannell, right? He brings her back in, and it was a totally different reading. And she got the role. But that's something I always say to clients. There's something going on, leave it in the car. When you go into the waiting room, you don't need to be anyone's best friend. You don't. Put on your music. Listen to something pretty. Listen to something wild. But get early. You don't have to go at the last. You know, you don't want to get there late. I remember I had a client went on an audition. It was at Warner Brothers. And there were new parking structures and the whole nine yards. And I know what, and I used to be in the lot, so I knew what that was like. Bill, most of the places were in the middle of the lot. And I said to her, make sure you get there really early. This is when I would leave if I was you. And she said, 
Well, I just went to Google Maps and it said, but they're not on the road with you, right? And I said it twice. A new lot, new parking structure. And she calls me once she got through the gate, hysterical. Well, what's wrong? I'm running late. I had to walk this far. And I'm like, yeah, and I what? You know, I, you know, remember I suggested to you, it's going to be a walk. It's going to be this over that. And when she comes out and when she gets out of the audition, she's walking back across the lot. She's crying. My makeup is running and I was sweaty and it's hot out. And I'm not, and I'm never going to say, I told you so. You know, but I did say, this is a lesson learned. Whenever anyone says to me that stuff, Wayne says this, and, but they're not on the road. I was going to a meeting with a, with a, with a friend of mine, another manager, a couple of years ago. And we were going to a meeting from my house about a half hour ride or more. And I said, please make sure you get here at this time. Don't worry. Waze, I don't care about Waze. I want to get there early. I want to unwind. I don't want to, you know, get there like this. You didn't listen to me. Got in the car. We're driving everything. And all of a sudden, there's a big accident. And we literally got there by the skin of our teeth. And it's bitching and moaning. And I'm like, I don't know. I guess Waze was a little wrong. You know, and that's another thing we got to keep hammering in people's heads. You can't always listen to Google Maps. Has that happened to you a lot, Jerry, where clients of yours, you decided to cut? Enough. Yeah. I remember we had a cough, like speaking of driving, like you called me once when I was in the car and, you know, you had just done our LA Advanced Industry Workshop panel. And you were like, it's so funny. I said in the Q&A, hey, if you're going to email follow up with me, do a few bullet points, don't write your personal life story. What do I get? I get this essay. And you're like, I don't have time or energy to reach through it. Well, that's another thing. I say, in mind, right, that's what you're saying. When, I, when I'm in a panel or if someone's asking me something, I say to them. And then we all said it the last time, I remember, the second one especially. Yeah, I talk you. about it in the orientation. Yeah. And I said to them, when you email me, what are two pictures, your reel or a link? I don't want a life, I don't want a novel. Short to the point. So when a person doesn't hear me, I'm already done. Done. Because then you can't take the simplest direction. And someone once said to me, well, that's cool. I said, why? Don't you think there's like a certain point? Well, when they text me. Well, there's some actors, don't you think, where like they go, okay, he told me not to do that. But I've heard so many stories of the celebrity who they told him not to bring a cigarette into the room and he brought in a cigarette and he got the job. So I'm going to, because I think there is a certain trend of actors who go, he told me not to do that, so everyone else is not going to do that. So I'm going to do it. Okay, so talking about that, when you bring this into the room, I remember a long time ago, the cast, I said, the cast director made very clear, no props, right? Mm -hmm. And this guy comes in, and he pulls out a knife. And the cast director literally probably was a part of that. And yeah. she said, in no uncertain terms, I will never bring him in again. Because he didn't just bring a knife. But he went right up almost into her face at, her, at the edge of her desk. And I said, you can't do these things, you know? Or it used to be there were certain casting directors they would say to you in the note, they do not, like, I don't want anyone wearing cologne or perfume, I'm allergic, da, da, da. And they come in and they're like, you know, I mean, you got to be smart about these things. That time in the room for you, it's your time. Not her time, not his time. You're three minutes or four minutes, and you got to do everything right. Jerry, it's funny that you say that because I remember you telling me, and this is interesting, Brian, when you said 
Uh, you said, why are these actors, when they're choosing whatever material they're going to showcase for me, why are they holding the script in their hand? So before every LA showcase, super showcase, I always tell the actors, listen, you're doing something for the agents because you're choosing the material. Don't hold text in your hand. I said it once. I'm sure some of you will. And so someone raised their hand saying, well, my acting teacher said not to do that. I said, okay, well, you either can listen to me. And I've gotten this response from managers and agents or listen to your acting teacher. And sure enough, a lot of times they'll hold it in their hands. Well, there's an actor in the last super session we did, one or two that had the, had it right in front of them. Come on. You can't do that. I'm so curious just because you've been in the industry for a while and, you know, obviously Hello? 43 Forget years, <laughs> but obviously not only has the industry changed even the last five years, it's always, but the world society has changed. Our country has so much for this for the last two years. I'm so curious. Do you see like, like a difference in the actors today that, you know, from when you first started? Cause I know people talk a lot about how, you know, Australian actors and British actors, like the reason why they book so much, because they're prepared and they're not afraid to do the work. I don't know. I mean, yeah, but I know a lot of, I, I have some clients that are pretty awesome where they live with the material, they enjoy the material, they make it work. They look at the different takes. I'm going to do two different takes. Some cast actors will, which I think is really great when they might say, I want he or she to do two different takes. And then they get to see two different sides and two different ways of coming about the role. And I think that's so wonderful. And that's important. But I think, I mean, you know, you know there are some actors that want the easy, they want the easy way out. And then the ones that really want a career. And I say to them, you have to live this. You have to breathe this. You have to sleep it. You can have a life, but know your priorities. You know, if you're caught up in this, then your acting slips a notch or slips more or more or more. You know, when I used to have a client that would get back to me two days late, I'm like, seriously? And you want to be a who? A what? You know, really? Or, if, you know, or if I say to somebody, if you call me and you leave me a message, that's all you need to do. And there was this one client. He'd call me and leave a message on my, my landline. Then call me and leave me a message on the cell line. Then email me and text me. Four. And I wrote back just two words, one word, overkill. <laughs> Speaking of overkill, Jerry, uh, because so much is happening now with... Uh... Self-tape will be your biggest recommendation when you have clients who have to, you know, submit themselves. You know, you're going to submit them. Well, what I like to do, I try to get my clients to send it to me first, right. way before their time, so I can give them notes. They might need it. They might not. I think that's a great thing. And they just have to be smart about what they're doing. They also have to make sure it's totally, I don't want to hear outside traffic. I don't want to hear anything else. I remember I was doing, I was doing for a college during the, during the, there wasn't the pandemic where they did a Zoom because I'm here. That it, you know, I love you to it, but I don't really, it's not an audition, but you know. Yeah, they hear sounds like that. And I'm like, you're hurting yourself. What about the background? How do you, what do you want the background to be? I don't want traffic. Okay, but besides the sound. You have to have a nice, solid background. Nice. Yeah, sometimes it's very busy or smoke shells. Blue background is your blue background. Great. Jerry, this has been unbelievable. Is there any parting words you'd like to like leave us with? Yes. Stay in class. Find some good workshops to do. Also, I like my clients to read. I always ask that. I'll never forget when they had other kinds of workshops back in the day before I really knew you. 
one of my go-to things was, you know, a little about me. What was your aha moment that made you realize this is what I wanted, do or die? And I'd say, how many of you are reading? And then I'd say, when they're done, ready to raise their hand, I go, not scripts, not plays, reading, books, magazines, poetry. And I'll never forget, there was a room of 35 actors, three. Three, what does that say? Because for me, an actor, you need to be up on your vocabulary. You're the keeper of the word. You're the one that's bringing it out there. You're the one that's coming alive. And if you don't know what's going on, outside of your little bubble, that's a problem. If you get back into a casting director's office, every now and then, cast director might say to you, so what do you do? What are you doing when you're not auditioning or something? You know, do you read? Do you like to read? What do you like? Do you recommend a nice book? And they're going, me, 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 me. So, I mean, my, my, my real important thing, I think, for actors are be the best version of who you are and pay attention. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't done it yet, grab the backstage pass. You've got to get the backstage pass. There's behind the scenes footage. We've taken the biggest takeaways from the episode and written them down for you. There's also tools and resources to help move your career forward. It's the easiest way to turn this podcast into a tool for your career, as opposed to something you just listen to as you're doing the dishes. Mm-hmm.